Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town, the delightfully whimsical small town tale from Stephen Leacock. This is the 11th title in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town. Chapter 6. The Beacon on the Hill Mullen said afterward that it was ever so much easier than he thought it would have been. The dean, he said, was so quiet. Of course, if Mr. Drone had started to swear at Mullins or tried to strike him, it would have been much harder. But as it was, he was so quiet that part of the time he hardly seemed to follow what Mullins was saying. So Mullins was glad of that, because it proved that the dean wasn't feeling disappointed, as, in a way, he might have. Indeed, the only time when the rector seemed animated and excited in the whole interview was when Mullins said that the campaign had been ruined by a lot of confounded mugwumps. Straight away, the dean asked if those mugwumps had really prejudiced the outcome of the campaign. Mullins said there was no doubt of it, and the dean inquired if the presence of mugwumps was fatal in matters of endeavor, and Mullins said that it was. Then the rector asked if even one mugwump was, in the Christian sense, deleterious. Mullins said that one mugwump would kill anything. After that, the dean hardly spoke at all. In fact, the rector presently said that he mustn't detain Mullins too long, and that he had detained him too long already, and that Mullins must be weary from his train journey, and that in cases of extreme weariness nothing but a sound sleep was of any avail. He himself, unfortunately, would not be able to avail himself of the priceless boon of slumber until he had first retired to his study to write some letters, so that Mullins, who had a certain kind of social quickness of intuition, saw that it was time to leave, and went away. It was midnight as he went down the street, and a dark, still night. That can be stated positively, because it came out in court afterwards. Mullins swore that it was a dark night. He admitted, under examination, that there may have been the stars, or at least some of the less important of them, though he had made no attempt, as brought out on cross-examination, to count them. There may have been, too, the electric lights, and Mullins was not willing to deny that it was quite possible that there was more or less moonlight, but that there was no light that night in the form of sunlight— Mullins was absolutely certain. All that, I say, came out in court. But meanwhile, the rector had gone upstairs to his study and had seated himself in front of his table to write his letters. It was here always that he wrote his sermons. From the window of the room, you look through the bare white maple trees to the sweeping outline of the church, shadowed against the night sky. And beyond that, though far off, was the new cemetery, where the rector walked of a Sunday. I think I told you why. Beyond that again, for the window faced the east, there lay, at no very great distance, the new Jerusalem. There were no better things that a man might look towards from his study window, nor anything that could serve as a better aid to writing. But, 
This night, the dean's letters must have been difficult indeed to write, for he sat beside the table, holding his pen and with his head bent upon his other hand, and though he sometimes put a line or two on the paper, for the most part he sat motionless. The fact is that Dean Drone was not trying to write letters, but only one letter. He was writing a letter of resignation. If you have not done that for forty years, it is extremely difficult to get the words. So at least the dean found it. First he wrote one set of words, and then he sat and thought and wrote something else. But nothing seemed to suit. The real truth was that Dean Drone, perhaps more than he knew himself, had a fine taste for words and effects, and when you feel that a situation is entirely out of the common, you naturally try, if you have that instinct, to give it the right sort of expression. I believe that at the time when Rupert Drone had taken the medal in Greek over fifty years ago, it was only a twist of fate that had prevented him from becoming a great writer. There was a buried author in him, just as there was a buried financier in Jefferson Thorpe. In fact, there were many people in Mariposa like that. And for all I know, you may yourself have seen such elsewhere. For instance, I am certain that Billy Rawson, the telegraph operator at Mariposa, could easily have invented radium. In the same way, one has only to read the advertisements of Mr. Gingham, the undertaker, to know that there is still in him a poet who could have written on death far more attractive verses than that Thanatopsis of Cullen Bryant, and under a title less likely to offend the public and drive away custom. He has told me this himself. So the dean tried first this and then that, and nothing would seem to suit. First of all, he wrote, It is now forty years since I came among you, a youth full of life and hope, and ardent in the work before me. Then he paused, doubtful of the accuracy and clearness of the expression, read it over again and again in deep thought, and then began again. It is now forty years since I came among you, a broken and melancholy boy, without life or hope, desiring only to devote to the service of this parish such few years as might remain of an existence blighted before it had truly begun. And then again the dean stopped. He read what he had written. He frowned. He crossed it through with his pen. This was no way to write. This thin, egotistical strain of complaint. Once more, he started. It is now forty years since I came among you. A man already tempered and trained, except possibly in mathematics. And then again, the rector paused, and his mind drifted away to the memory of the Anglican professor that I spoke of, who had had so little sense of his higher mission as to admit the teaching of logarithms. And the rector mused so long that when he began again, it seemed to him that it was simpler and better to discard the personal note altogether. And he wrote, There are times, gentlemen, in the life of a parish, when it comes to an epoch which brings it to a moment when it reaches a point. The dean stuck fast again, but refusing this time to be beaten, went resolutely on. 
reaches a point where the circumstances of the moment make the epoch such as to focus the life of the parish in that time. Then the dean saw that he was beaten, and he knew that he not only couldn't manage the parish, but couldn't say so in proper English, and of the two, the last was the bitterer discovery. He raised his head and looked for a moment through the window at the shadow of the church against the night, so outlined that you could almost fancy that the light of the new Jerusalem was beyond it. Then he wrote, and this time not to the world at large, but only to Mullins. My dear Harry, I want to resign my charge. Will you come over and help me? When the dean at last rose from writing that, I think it was far on in the night. As he rose, he looked again through the window, looked once and then once more, and so stood with widening eyes and his face set towards what he saw. What was that? That light in the sky there, eastward, near or far, he could not say. Was it already the dawn of the new Jerusalem brightening in the east? Or was it, look, in the church itself, what is that? That dull red glow that shines behind the stained glass windows, turning them to crimson. That fork of flame that breaks now from the casement and flashes upward along the wood. And see, that sudden sheet of fire that springs the windows of the church with the roar of splintered glass and surges upward into the sky till the dark night and the bare trees and sleeping street of Mariposa are all illumined with its glow. Fire! Fire! And the sudden sound of the bell now breaking upon the night. So stood the dean erect, with one hand pressed against the table for support, while the mariposa fire-bell struck out its warning to the sleeping town, stood there while the street grew loud with the tumult of voices, with the roaring gallop of the fire-brigade, with the harsh note of the gong, and over all other sounds, the great seething of the flames that tore their way into the beams and rafters of the pointed church and flared above it like a torch into the midnight sky. So stood the dean, and as the church broke thus into a very beacon kindled upon a hill, sank forward without a sign, his face against the table, stricken. You need to see a fire in a place such as Mariposa, a town still half of wood, to know what fire means. In the city it is all different. To the onlooker, at any rate, a fire is only a spectacle, nothing more. Everything is arranged, organized, certain. It is only once perhaps in a century that fire comes to a large city as it comes to the little wooden town like Mariposa as a great terror of the night. That, at any rate, is what it meant in Mariposa that night in April, the night the Church of England Church burnt down. Had the fire gained but a hundred feet or less, it could have reached from the driving shed behind the church to the backs of the wooden shops of the main street, and once there, not all the waters of Lake Wissanotti could stay the course of its destruction. It was for that hundred feet that they fought 
the men of Mariposa, from the midnight call of the bell till the slow coming of the day. They fought the fire, not to save the church, for that was doomed from the first outbreak of the flames, but to stop the spread of it and save the town. They fought it at the windows and at the blazing doors and through the yawning furnace of the open belfry, fought it with the Mariposa engine thumping and panting in the street, itself aglow with fire, like a servant demon fighting its own kind, with tall ladders reaching to the very roof, and with hose that poured their streams of tossing water foaming into the flames. Most of all, they fought to save the wooden driving shed behind the church from which the fire could leap into the heart of Mariposa. That was where the real fight was, for the life of the town. I wish you could have seen how they turned the hose against the shingles, ripping and tearing them from their places with the force of the driven water. How they mounted on the roof, axe in hand, and cut madly at the rafters to bring the building down, while the black clouds of smoke rolled in volumes about the men as they worked. You could see the fire horses harnessed with logging chains to the uprights of the shed to tear the building from its place. Most of all, I wish you could have seen Mr. Smith, proprietor, as I think you know, of Smith's Hotel, there on the roof with a fireman's helmet on, cutting through the main beam of solid cedar, twelve by twelve, that held tight still when the rafters and the roof tree were down already, the shed on fire in a dozen places, and the other men, driven from the work by the flaming sparks and by the strangle of the smoke. Ah, oh, not so, Mr. Smith. See him there as he plants himself firm at the angle of the beams, and with the full impact of his two hundred and eighty pounds, drives his axe into the wood. I tell you, it takes a man from the pine country of the north to handle an axe. Right, left, right, left, right, down it comes with never a pause or stay, never missing by a fraction of an inch the line of the stroke. At it, Smith, down with it, till, with a shout from the crowd, the beam gapes asunder, and Mr. Smith is on the ground again, roaring his directions to the men and horses as they haul down the shed in a voice that dominates the fire itself. Who made Mr. Smith the head and chief of the Mariposa Fire Brigade that night, I cannot say. I do not know even where he got the huge red helmet that he wore. Nor had I ever heard, till the night the church burnt down, that Mr. Smith was a member of the Fire Brigade at all. But it's always that way. Your little narrow-chested men may plan and organize, but when there is something to be done— something real, then it's the man of size and weight that steps to the front every time. Look at Bismarck and Mr. Gladstone and President Taft and Mr. Smith. The same thing in each case. I suppose it was perfectly natural that just as soon as Mr. Smith came on the scene, he put on somebody's helmet and shouted his directions to the man and bossed the Mariposa Fire Brigade like Bismarck with the German Parliament. The fire had broken out late, late at night, and they fought it till the day. The flame of it lit up the town, and the bare, gray maple trees, and you could see in the light of it the broad sheet of the frozen lake, snow-covered still. 
it kindled such a beacon as it burned that from the other side of the lake the people on the night express from the north could see it twenty miles away. It lit up such a testimony of flame that Mariposa has never seen the like of it before or since. Then, when the roof crashed in, and the tall steeple tottered and fell, so swift a darkness seemed to come that the grey trees and the frozen lake vanished in a moment as if blotted out of existence. When the morning came, the great church of Mariposa was nothing but a ragged group of walls with a sodden heap of bricks and blackened wood, still hissing here and there beneath the hose with the sullen anger of a conquered fire. Round the ruins of the fire walked the people of Mariposa next morning, and they pointed out where the wreck of the steeple had fallen and where the bells of the church lay in a molten heap among the bricks, and they talked of the loss that it was, and how many dollars it would take to rebuild the church, and whether it was insured, and for how much. And there were at least fourteen people who had seen the fire first, and more than that, who had given the first alarm, and ever so many who knew how fires of this sort could be prevented." Most noticeable of all, you could see the sidesmen and the wardens and mullins, the chairman of the vestry, talking in little groups about the fire. Later in the day, there came from the city the insurance men and the fire appraisers, and they too walked about the ruins and talked with the wardens and the vestrymen. There was such a luxury of excitement in the town that day, it was just as good as a public holiday. But the strangest part of it, was the unexpected sequel. I don't know through what error of the dean's figures it happened, through what lack of mathematical training the thing turned out as it did. No doubt the memory of the mathematical professor was heavily to blame for it. But the solid fact is that the Church of England Church of Mariposa turned out to be insured for a hundred thousand and there were the receipts and the vouchers, all signed and regular, just as they found them in a drawer of the rector's study. There was no doubt about it. The insurance people might protest as they liked. The straight, plain fact was that the church was insured for about twice the whole amount of the cost and the debt and the rector's salary and the boarding school fees of the littlest of the drones all put together. There was a whirlwind campaign for you. Talk of raising money. That was something like. I wonder if the universities and the city institutions that go round trying to raise money by the slow and painful method called a whirlwind campaign that takes perhaps all day to raise $50,000 ever thought of anything so beautifully simple as this. The greater testimony that had lain so heavily on the congregation went flaming to its end and burned up its debts and its obligations and enriched its worshippers by its destruction. Talk of a beacon on a hill. You can hardly beat that one. I wish you could have seen how the wardens and the sidesmen and Mullins, the chairman of the vestry, smiled and chuckled at the thought of it. Hadn't they said all along that all they needed was a little faith and effort? And here it was, just as they said, and they'd been right after all. 
Protest from the insurance people? <laughs> Legal proceedings to prevent payment? My dear sir, I see you know nothing about the Mariposa Court, in spite of the fact that I have already said that it was one of the most precise instruments of British fair play ever established. Why, Judge Pepperley disposed of the case and dismissed the protest of the company in less than fifteen minutes. Just what the jurisdiction of Judge Pepperley's court is, I don't know. But I do know that in upholding the rights of a Christian congregation, I am quoting here the text of the decision, against the intrigues of a set of infernal skunks that make too much money anyway, the Mariposa court is without an equal. Pepperley even threatened the plaintiffs with the penitentiary, or worse, how the fire started, no one ever knew. There was a queer story that went about to the effect that Mr. Smith and Mr. Gingham's assistant had been seen very late that night carrying an automobile can of kerosene up the street. But that was amply disproved by the proceedings of the court and by the evidence of Mr. Smith himself. He took his dying oath not his ordinary one, as used in the license cases, but his dying one, that he had not carried a can of kerosene up the street, and that, anyway, it was the rottenest kind of kerosene he had ever seen, and no more use than so much molasses. So that point was settled. Dean Drone? Did he get well again? Why, what makes you ask that? You mean, was his head at all affected after the stroke? No. It was not. Absolutely not. It was not affected in the least, though how anybody who knows him now in Mariposa could have the faintest idea that his mind was in any way impaired by the stroke is more than I can tell. The engaging of Mr. Uttermost, the curate, whom perhaps you have heard preach in the new church, had nothing whatever to do with Dean Drone's head. It was merely a case of the pressure of overwork— it was felt very generally by the wardens that in these days of specialization the rector was covering too wide a field, and that if he should abandon some of the lesser duties of his office, he might devote his energies more intently to the infant class. That was all. You may hear him there any afternoon talking to them, if you will stand under the maple trees and listen through the open windows of the new infant school. And as for audiences, for intelligence, for attention, well, if you want to find listeners who can hear and understand about the great spaces of Lake Huron, let me tell it. Every time face to face with the blue eyes of the infant class, fresh from the infinity of spaces greater still, Talk of grown-up people all you like. But for listeners, let me have the infant class, with their pinafores and their teddy bears, and their feet not even touching the floor, and Mr. Uttermost may preach to his heart's content of the newer forms of doubt revealed by the higher criticism. So you will understand that the dean's mind is, if anything, even keener, and his head even clearer than before. And if you want proof of it, notice him there beneath the plum blossoms reading in the Greek. He has told me that he finds that he can read with the greatest ease works in the Greek that seemed difficult before. 
because his head is so clear now. And sometimes, when his head is very clear, as he sits there reading beneath the plum blossoms, he can hear them singing beyond, and his wife's voice. Chapter 7 The Extraordinary Entanglement of Mr. Pupkin Judge Pepperley lived in a big house with hardwood floors and a wide piazza that looked over the lake from the top of Oneida Street. Every day, about half-past five, he used to come home from his office in the Mariposa courthouse. On some days, as he got near the house, he would call out to his wife, "'Almighty Moses, Martha! Who left the sprinkler on the grass?' On other days, he would call to her from quite a little distance off. Hello, mother. Got any supper for a hungry man? And Mrs. Pepperly never knew which it would be. On the days when he swore at the sprinkler, you could see his spectacles flash like dynamite. But on the days when he called, Hello, mother, they were simply irradiated with kindliness. Some days, I say, he would cry out with a perfect whine of indignation, Suffering Caesar has that infernal dog torn up those geraniums again. And other days, you would hear him singing out, Hello, Rover! Well, doggy, well, old fellow! <laughs> In the same way, at breakfast, the judge, as he looked over the morning paper, would sometimes leap to his feet with a perfect howl of suffering and cry, "'Everlasting Moses! The Liberals have carried East Elgin!' Or else he would lean back from the breakfast table with the most good-humoured laugh you ever heard and say, "'Ah, ah the Conservatives have carried South Norfolk!' <laughs> and yet he was perfectly logical when you come to think of it. After all, what is more annoying to a sensitive, highly strung man than an infernal sprinkler playing all over the place? And what more agreeable to a good-natured, even-tempered fellow than a well-prepared supper? Or what is more likable than one's good, old, affectionate dog bounding down the path from sheer delight at seeing you? Or more execrable than an infernal whelp that has torn up the geraniums and is too old to keep anyway. As for politics, well, it all seemed reasonable enough. When the conservatives got in anywhere, Pepperly laughed and enjoyed it, simply because it does one good to see a straight, fine, honest fight where the best man wins. When a liberal got in, it made him mad, and he said so, not, mind you, from any political bias, for his office forbid it, but simply because one can't bear to see the country go absolutely to the devil. I suppose, too, it was partly the effect of sitting in court all day, listening to cases. One gets what you might call the judicial temper of mind— Pepperly had it so strongly developed that I've seen him kick a hydrangea pot to pieces with his foot because the accursed thing wouldn't flower. He once threw the canary cage clear into the lilac bushes because the blasted bird wouldn't stop singing. It was a straight case of judicial temper. Lots of judges have it, developed in just the same broad, all-round way as with Judge Pepperly. I think it must be passing sentences that does it. 
Anyway, Pepperly had the aptitude for passing sentences so highly perfected that he spent his whole time at it inside of court and out. I've heard him hand out sentences for the Sultan of Turkey and Mrs. Pankhurst and the Emperor of Germany that made one's blood run cold. He would sit there on the piazza of a summer evening reading the paper with dynamite sparks flying from his spectacles as he sentenced the Tsar of Russia to ten years in the salt mines and made it fifteen a few minutes afterwards. Pepperly always read the foreign news the news of things that he couldn't alter, as a form of wild and stimulating torment. So, you can imagine that in some ways the judge's house was a pretty difficult house to go to. I mean, you can see how awfully hard it must have been for Mr. Pupkin. I tell you, it took some nerve to step up on that piazza and say, in a perfectly natural, offhand way, "'Oh, how do you do, Judge?' Is Miss Zena in? No, I won't stay, thanks. I think I ought to be going. I simply called. A man who can do that has got to have a pretty fair amount of savoir, what do you call it? And he's got to be mighty well shaved and have his cameo pin in his tie at a pretty undeniable angle before he can tackle it. Oh, yes, and even then he may need to hang round behind the lilac bushes for half an hour first and cool off, and he's apt to make pretty good time down Oneida Street on the way back. Still, that's what you call love, and if you've got it and are well shaved and your boots well blacked, you can do things that seem almost impossible. Yes, you can do anything, even if you do trip over the dog in getting off the piazza. Don't suppose for a moment that Judge Pepperly was an unapproachable or a harsh man always unto everybody. Even Mr. Pupkin had to admit that that couldn't be so. To know that, you had only to see Zena Pepperly put her arm round his neck and call him Daddy. She would do that even when there were two or three young men sitting on the edge of the piazza. You know, I think, the way they sit on the edge in Mariposa. It is meant to indicate what part of the family they have come to see. Thus, when George Duff, the bank manager, came up to the Pepperly house, he always sat in a chair on the veranda and talked to the judge. But when Pupkin or Mallory Tompkins or any fellow like that, he sat down in a sidelong fashion on the edge of the boards, and then they knew exactly what he was there for. If he knew the house well, he leaned his back against the veranda post and smoked a cigarette. But that took nerve. But I am afraid that this is a digression, and of course you know all about it just as well as I do. All that I was trying to say was that I don't suppose that the judge had ever spoken a cross word to Zena in his life. Oh, he threw her novel over the grapevine, I don't deny that. But then, why on earth should a girl read trash like The Errant Quest of the Paladin Pilgrim and The Life of Sir Galahad when the house was full of good reading like The Life of Sir John A. MacDonald and Pioneer Days in Tecumseh Township? Still, what I mean is that the judge never spoke harshly to Zena, except perhaps under extreme provocation, and I am quite sure that he never, never had to kneel. But then, 
What father ever would want to speak angrily to such a boy as Neil Pepperly? The judge took no credit himself for that. The finest grown boy in the whole county, and so broad and big that they took him into the Missanaba horse when he was only seventeen. And clever. So clever that he didn't need to study. So clever that he used to come out at the foot of the class in mathematics at the Mariposa High School through sheer surplus of brain power. I've heard the judge explain it a dozen times. Why, Neil was so clever that he used to be able to play billiards at the Mariposa House all evening when the other boys had to stay home and study. Such a powerful-looking fellow, too. Everybody in Mariposa remembers how Neil Pepperly smashed in the face of Peter McGinnis, the liberal organizer at the big election. You recall it, when the old MacDonald government went out. Judge Pepperly had to try him for it the next morning. His own son. They say there never was such a scene even in the Mariposa court. There was, I believe, something like it on a smaller scale in Roman history, but it wasn't half as dramatic. I remember Judge Pepperly leaning forward to pass the sentence, for a judge is bound, you know, by his oath, and how grave he looked, and yet so proud and happy, like a man doing his duty and sustained by it. And he said, "'My boy, you are innocent.' You smashed in Peter McGuinness's face, but you did it without criminal intent. You put a face on him by Jehoshaphat, and he won't lose that for six months. But you did it without evil purpose or malign design. My boy, look up. Give me your hand. You leave this court without a stain upon your name. They said, it was one of the most moving scenes ever enacted in the Mariposa court. But the strangest thing is that if the judge had known what everyone else in Mariposa knew, it would have broken his heart. If he could have seen Neil with the drunken flush on his face in the billiard room of the Mariposa house, if he had known as everyone else did, that Neil was crazed with drink the night he struck the liberal organizer when the old MacDonald government went out, if he could have known that even on that last day Neil was drunk when he rode with the Missanaba horse to the station to join the third contingent for the war, and all the street of the little town was one great roar of people. But the judge never knew. And now he never will. For if you could find it in the meanness of your soul to tell him, it would serve no purpose now except to break his heart. And there would rise up to rebuke you the pictured vision of an untended grave somewhere in the great silences of South Africa. Did I say above, or seem to imply, that the judge sometimes spoke harshly to his wife? Or did you gather for a minute that her lot was one to lament over or feel sorry for? If so, it just shows you know nothing about such things, and that marriage, at least as it exists in Mariposa, is a sealed book to you. You are as ignorant as Miss Spiffkins, the biology teacher at the high school, who always says how sorry she is for Mrs. Pepperley. You get that impression simply because the judge howled when he saw the sprinkler running on the lawn. 
Are you sure you know the other side of it? Are you quite sure when you talk like Miss Spiffkins does about the rights of it that you are taking all things into account? You might have thought differently, perhaps, of the Pepperleys anyway, if you had been there that evening when the judge came home to his wife with one hand pressed to his temple, and in the other the cablegram that said that Neil had been killed in action in South Africa. That night they sat together, with her hand in his, just as they had sat together thirty years ago, when he was a law student in the city. Go and tell Miss Smithkins that. Huh. Hydrangeas, canaries, temper, blazes. What does Miss Spiffkins know about it all? But in any case, if you tried to tell Judge Pepperly about Neil now, he wouldn't believe it. He'd laugh it to scorn. That is, Neil's picture, in uniform, hanging in the dining room besides the Fathers of Confederation. That military-looking man in the picture beside him is General Kitchener, whom you may perhaps have heard of, for he was very highly spoken of in Neil's letters. All round the room, in fact, and still more in the judge's library upstairs, you will see pictures of South Africa and the departure of the Canadians, there are none of the return, and of mounted infantry, and of unmounted cavalry, and a lot of things that only soldiers and the fathers of soldiers know about. So you can realize that for a fellow who isn't military, and who wears nothing nearer to a uniform than a daffodil tennis blazer, the judge's house is a devil of a house to come to. I think you remember young Mr. Pupkin, do you not? I have referred to him several times already as the junior teller in the exchange bank. But if you know Mariposa at all, you have often seen him. You have noticed him, I am sure, going for the bank mail in the morning in an office suit effect of clinging gray with a gold necktie pin shaped like a riding whip. You have seen him often enough going down to the lakefront after supper in tennis things, smoking a cigarette and with a paddle and a crimson canoe cushion under his arm. You have seen him entering Dean Drone's church in a top hat and a long frock coat nearly to his feet. You have seen him, perhaps, playing poker in Peter Glover's room over the hardware store and trying to look as if he didn't hold three aces. In fact, giving absolutely no sign of it beyond the wild flush in his face and the fact that his hair stands on end. That kind of reticence is a thing you simply have to learn in banking. I mean, if you got to be in a position where you know for a fact that the Mariposa Packing Company's account is overdrawn by $64, and yet daren't say anything about it, not even to the girls that you play tennis with, I don't say not a casual hint as a reference, but not really tell them, not, for instance, bring down the bank ledger to the tennis court and show them, you learn a sort of reticence and self-control that people outside of banking circles never can attain. Why, I've known Pupkin at the fireman's ball, lean against the wall in his dress suit, and talk away to Jim Elliot, the druggist, without giving the faintest hint or indication that Elliot's note for $27 had been protested that very morning. Not a hint of it. 
I don't say he didn't mention it in a sort of way in the supper room, just to one or two, but, I mean, there was nothing in the way he leant up against the wall to suggest it. But, however, I don't mention that as either for or against Mr. Pupkin. That sort of thing is merely the ABC of banking, as he himself told me when explaining why it was that he hesitated to divulge the exact standing of the Mariposa Carriage Company. Of course, once you get past the ABC, you can learn a lot that is mighty interesting. So, I think that if you know Mariposa and understand even the rudiments of banking, you are perfectly acquainted with Mr. Pupkin. What? You remember him as being in love with Miss Lawson, the high school teacher? In love with her? (laughs) What a ridiculous idea. You mean merely because on the night when the Mariposa Bell sank with every soul on board, Pupkin put off from the town in a skiff to rescue Miss Lawson? Oh, but you're quite wrong. That wasn't love. I've heard Pupkin explain it himself a dozen times. That sort of thing. Paddling out to a sinking steamer at night in a crazy skiff may indicate a sort of attraction, but but not real love. Not what Pupkin came to feel afterwards. Indeed, when he began to think of it, it wasn't even attraction. It was merely respect. That's all it was. And anyway, that was long before, six or seven months back, and Pupkin admitted that at the time he was a mere boy. Mr. Pupkin, I must explain, lived with Mallory Tompkins in rooms over the Exchange Bank, on the very top floor, the third, with Mullins' own rooms below them. Extremely comfortable quarters they were, with two bedrooms and a sitting room that was all fixed up with snowshoes and tennis rackets on the walls and dance programs and canoe club badges and all that sort of thing. Valerie Tompkins was a young man with long legs and check trousers who worked on the Mariposa Times Herald. That was what gave him his literary taste. He used to read Ibsen. And that other Dutch author, Bumstone, Bumstone, isn't it? And you can judge that he was a mighty intellectual fellow. He was so intellectual that he was, as he himself admitted, a complete agnostic. He and Pupkin used to have the most tremendous arguments about creation and evolution, and how if you study at a school of applied science, you learn that there's no hell beyond the present life. Mallory Tompkins used to prove absolutely that the miracles were only electricity, and Pupkin used to admit that it was an awfully good argument, but claimed that he had heard it awfully well answered in a sermon, though unfortunately he had forgotten how. Tompkins used to show that the flood was contrary to geology, and Pupkin would acknowledge that the point was an excellent one, but that he had read a book the title of which he ought to have written down, which explained geology away altogether. Mallory Tompkins generally got the best of the merely logical side of the arguments, but Pupkin, who was a tremendous Christian, was much stronger in the things he had forgotten. So the discussions often lasted till far into the night, and Mr. Pupkin would fall asleep and dream of a splendid argument, which would have settled the whole controversy. Only, unfortunately, he couldn't recall it in the morning. 
Of course, Popkin would never have thought of considering himself on an intellectual par with Mallory Tompkins. That would have been ridiculous. Mallory Tompkins had read all sorts of things and had half a mind to write a novel himself. Either that or a play. All he needed, he said, was to have a chance to get away somewhere by himself and think. Every time he went away to the city, Popkin expected that he might return with the novel all finished. But though he often came back with his eyes red from thinking, the novel as yet remained incomplete. Meanwhile, Mallory Tompkins, as I say, was a mighty intellectual fellow. You could see that from the books on the bamboo bookshelves in the sitting room. There was, for instance, the Encyclopedia Metropolitana in 40 volumes that he bought on the installment plan for $2 a month. Then when they took that away, there was the History of Civilization in 50 volumes at 50 cents a week for 50 years. Tompkins had read it halfway through the Stone Age before they took it away from him. After that, there was The Lives of the Painters, one volume at a time, a splendid thing in which you could read all about Ahrens and Achenthal and Ax and men of that class. After all, there's nothing like educating oneself. Mallory Tompkins knew about the opening period of all sorts of things, and in regard to people whose names began with A, you couldn't stick them. I don't mean that he and Mr. Pupkin lived on mere routine of studious evenings. That would be untrue. Quite often, their time was spent in much less commendable ways than that, and there were poker parties in their sitting room that didn't break up until nearly midnight. Card-playing, after all, is a slow business, unless you put money on it. And besides, if you are in a bank and are handling money all day, gambling has a fascination. I've seen Pupkin and Mallory Tompkins and Joe Milligan, the dentist, and Mitchell, the ticket agent, and the other boys sitting round the table with matches enough piled up in front of them to stock a factory. Ten matches counted for one chip, and ten chips made a cent. So you see, they weren't merely playing for the fun of the thing. Of course, it's a hollow pleasure. You realize that when you wake up at night, parch with thirst, ten thousand matches to the bad. But banking is a wild life, and everybody knows it. Sometimes, Pupkin would swear off and keep away from the cursed thing for weeks, and then perhaps... He'd see, by sheer accident, a pile of matches on the table, or a match lying on the floor, and it would start the craze in him. I'm using his own words, a craze. That's what he called it when he told Miss Lawson all about it. And she promised to cure him of it. She would have, too. Only, as I say, Pupkin found out that what he had mistaken for attraction was only respect. And there's no use worrying a woman that you respect about your crazes. It was from Mallory Tompkins that Pupkin learned all about the Mariposa people, because Pupkin came from a way off, somewhere down in the maritime provinces, and didn't know a soul. Mallory Tompkins used to tell them about Judge Pepperley, and what a wonderfully clever man he was, and how he would have been in the Supreme Court for certain if the Conservative government had stayed in another fifteen or twenty years, instead of coming to a premature end. 
He used to talk so much about the Pepperleys that Pupkin was sick of the very name. But just as soon as he had seen Zena Pepperley, he couldn't hear enough of them. He would have talked with Tompkins for hours about the judge's dog Rover. And as for Zena, if he could have brought her name over his lips, he would have talked of her forever. He first saw her by one of the strangest coincidences in the world on the main street of Mariposa. If he hadn't happened to be going up the street and she to be coming down it, the thing wouldn't have happened. Afterwards, they both admitted that it was one of the most peculiar coincidences they had ever heard of. Pupkin owned that he had had the strangest feeling that morning, as if something were going to happen, a feeling not at all to be classed with the one of which he had once spoken to Miss Lawson, and which was, at the most, a mere anticipation of respect. But, as I say, Pupkin met Zena Pepperley on the 26th of June, at 25 minutes to 11, and at once the whole world changed. The past was all blotted out. Even in the new 40-volume edition of the installment record of humanity that Mallory Tompkins had just received, Pupkin wouldn't have bothered with it. She, that word henceforth meant Zena, had just come back from her boarding school, and of all times of year coming back from a boarding school, and for wearing a white shirtwaist and a crimson tie, and for carrying a tennis racket on the stricken street of a town, commend me to the month of June in Mariposa. And for Pupkin, Straight away, the whole town was irradiated with sunshine, and there was such a singing of the birds, and such a dancing of the rippled waters of the lake, and such a kindliness in the faces of all the people, that only those who have lived in Mariposa and been young there can know at all what he felt. The simple fact is that just the moment he saw Zena Pepperley, Mr. Pumpkin was clean, plumb, straight, flat, absolutely in love with her. Which fact is so important that it would be folly not to close the chapter and think about it. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include The Scarlet Pimpernel, Vanity Fair, Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.